have a copy of God's Word, turn to Luke 17, Luke chapter 17 for the reading of the Word of God. going to read from verse 20 through to the end of the chapter. don't normally take such a lengthy section, but I wish to tonight. The Lord Jesus is making His way to Jerusalem, and you can almost sense the intensity of his language as you move through this gospel. If you just reflect upon the examples of his mercy and the healings and miracles and divine intervention in the lives of people and such tenderness shown to the needy, and it begins to turn into stronger and stronger language of judgment and specifically to those of the Jews. And in some way, you can understand that given that Luke is really laying a gospel for the purpose of Gentiles, not exclusively, but certainly uh, in that direction, helping them understand that it's for them too. And so in that, he's, he's giving the sort of peppering encouragement. For example, even what we looked at last week, uh, the one that is thankful was the stranger, the one that you wouldn't imagine, the one that wouldn't have been uh, in all the covenant privileges to the same degree as the Jews. And yet, they're the one that comes back and the one taken as an example. And so, the, the judgment is becoming more and more heavy upon those that ought to know better. And so, we come to verse 20. We're going to read, as I say, from here through the end of the chapter. And I trust the Lord will give help. It's not an easy portion, I'll just say that now. And you may disagree uh, with some remarks, I don't know, I'm not sure how you understand it. It's certainly not easy, and men differ here. But I think what we have before us is a passage that is largely focusing upon the, the return of Christ, His, His coming back again. There's debate about whether it relates to 70 A.D., and there's some language that, that may cause thought relating to that. But I think, I think the focus is on the end. So, let's hear the Word of God, Luke 17, verse 20. When he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo, here." Or, lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto the disciples, Days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here, or see there. Go not after them, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, 
so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed, the one shall be taken, the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord for his help. Our God, we are thankful as we come before thee in thy word that this is the very word of God. And every word of God is pure. We pray that we might handle it carefully always, and especially that it would become part of us, that we would imbibe the Word, that it would govern our affections, it would govern our passions, it would govern our decisions, so that we might be those under the sway of the sovereign Word of the sovereign God. Oh, Lord, please help us. We are inclined to our own ways. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've gone everyone to his own way. That's, that's the way we are. We just want to pursue our own way. And we pray that you'll bring us back under thy word. And we ask that it might give us the light that we need to live for the glory of God in this world. So come and make thy presence known tonight. And should there be any living carelessly, any that are far from what they should be, any playing with their eternity, I pray that they might be sobered and humbled and brought to repentance. So give us thy presence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Repeatedly, as we have gone through this gospel, there has been a focus upon the subject of the kingdom of God. It has come up time and time again in various ways. And of course, this whole subject is one that is anticipated by the Old Testament believers. And even those that were enemies of Christ are thinking about it. You see that from verse 20, when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. This is on their minds. It's also, of course, on 
the minds of the disciples, they have interest in it as well. And so this, this whole chapter is bookended by questions that relate to the kingdom of God. When? Verse 20. And the disciples? Where? Verse 37. But as we look at the life of Christ and his ministry, over and over again the message has been that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And various truths, some tied into parables, some in plain statements, have given us understanding concerning the kingdom of God. I was thinking of Nicodemus. Remember when he came, the early part of Christ's ministry? There you have, of course, a leader among the Pharisees. And he acknowledges, remember in John 3, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And Jesus replies to that, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus doesn't mention the kingdom of God, but it would appear that Christ is anticipating that's what is in his heart. Are these miracles an indicator that the kingdom of God has come? That's not how he frames his question. It's not how he approaches the Lord, but with the reply and response of the Lord Jesus, it would seem to show that that's what the Lord is saying to him, that I know that's what you're thinking. You're, you're seeing these miracles. And you all know that I'm come from God. The question is, is this the bringing in, the ushering in of the kingdom? That's what's lying at your heart. And he's told that you can't see it unless you're born again. You'll not be able to grasp it. Which is similar to what we have in our passage when the Lord addresses the Pharisees in verse 20, when they're demanding when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. It doesn't come with outward show. It's not something that you can simply see that everyone is aware of by some ocular perspective. It's, you, you, there's something has to be done in you in order to really see what's going on. The Pharisees then show their ignorance because they imagined that the ushering in of the kingdom would look a certain way, that it would be, they were anticipating certain features that were spectacular. Now, I say that, and then you come back and ask, well, wasn't the ministry of Christ spectacular? Didn't, shake, didn't it shake the entire generation? The whole city of Jerusalem, the villages and the surrounding areas, up into Galilee, the whole area and regions round about are moved with interest concerning Jesus Christ and what He is teaching and especially what He's doing. So if you were looking for the spectacular, it was there, but it didn't just look quite like what they imagined. That was the problem. And so the Lord tells them, verse 21, Neither shall they say, Lo, here or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you, or to say, it is already among you. It's already among you. Of course, it wasn't within them. That's the, so don't misunderstand what he's saying and how it's translated there. The kingdom of God was not in these Pharisees, but it was among them. It was right there, at hand. Now, as I said over and over again, we have repeated references to the kingdom of God, insight into the kingdom of God. We're told, as I said, the kingdom of God is at hand. We are to pray 
thy kingdom come. We are to seek first the kingdom of God. We know that Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, that Christians through much tribulation enter the kingdom, that the dying thief requested that the Lord would remember him when he comes into his kingdom, that the kingdom must be preached in all nations before the end come, and that some would be least and some would be greatest in the kingdom of God. This is just a a little selection of things that we're told about the kingdom. And when you bring them all together, of course, (laughs) some questions begin to be asked. Well, well, what then is it? Has it already begun? Is it political? Is it merely internal? Does it begin with the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ? And you have men all through history trying to figure it all out. Well, I'm, I'm not going to get sidetracked into that specific area tonight. I think I have way back, at some point, I did pause on the whole idea of the kingdom, I think. That's what my memory is telling me. At some point, probably a long time ago, I dealt with that. But the bottom line is this, for, for, our, for the, our purposes tonight, the bottom line is this, you need to be in it. You need to be a part of it. And if you're not, you're going to perish. That will be clear tonight as we look at the verses that are before us. And so, I've titled these, this passage as The Coming of the King and His Kingdom. The Coming of the King and His Kingdom. And I want you to note with me, first of all, the King's return will be anticipated. It will be anticipated. Look at verse 22 when he turns to his disciples. So with this subject at the forefront, then he turns to his disciples to instruct them. The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, see here, see there, go not after them, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. So it's going to be anticipated first in a genuine way. It will be anticipated in a genuine way. That's what verse 22 tells us. He's looking in the eyeballs of his disciples and saying that the days are going to come, you're going to long. You're going to long for the King to come. Now you can understand why. The disciples are going to have really tough days ahead of them. Days that they could never have prepared themselves for. Experiences that nothing would have prepared them for except grace in the moment. And as they look at the unraveling, as they see the unbelief, as they see the wickedness arise, as they see the martyrdom of their friends, as they see the utter rejection of the Son of God, there's going to be at times this rising desire. Oh, that it would just, He would just come and usher in His government and His reign and spread peace through all Bring all things to an end that will glorify Him, consummate the full victory for which He died and rose again. So they're going to seek it in a genuine way. And you relate to that. The mature believers here are going to relate to that at the very least. 
Because you're going to have had thoughts at times like where, where the prayer, that we pray every time we sit at the Lord's table, even so come, Lord Jesus, arises from you more fervently than at other times. You feel it. You see the headlines. You see the sorrows. You see the tragedies. You see the mess of the church <laughs> as well as the world. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. So, you see, this is what the Lord is saying. You're, you're going to have a genuine anticipation of it, of this coming. But it's also going to be anticipated in a deceptive way. Verse 23 and 24. There's going to be these voices that say, see here or see there. They're going to try to play upon the desires and sincere longings of the hearts of, of those that are true and the inclinations even of some that are not true. People are going to play upon fear, play upon the kind of inner desires that the Lord would come and just bring to an end all that is transpiring here below. See here, see there, He's come. Here He is. So there's going to be a deceptive way in which people anticipate, where, where they, they know all of this, and so they begin to play upon it. Now, the whole history of the church, you can see this. Sometimes it arises, I think, from somewhat genuine believers, but usually it's from the complete, I mean, they get exposed by foolish statements. Take, for example, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. When they arose and they started, there was a huge emphasis upon the Lord's return, and there was lots of prophetic statements about when it was going to come and what it was going to look like. And then finally, of course, the prophecy that really they, they honed in on was, was 1914. Well, of course, 1914 came and passed, and Jesus Christ didn't return. But because this had been declared by their prophet, and they have to maintain the integrity of the prophet, they begin to say, well, he came. It was just invisibly. He came invisibly. He returned invisibly. So this is the kind of thing that goes on. This is what the Lord is addressing here. This deceptive way of playing upon this where people begin to say, look, it's here, it's there, or whatever. But He assures them. He assures them. He settles their hearts. You will know. You will know. How will you know? You'll know in the same way that people in the same vicinity, even miles and miles apart, see the same lightning flash across the sky. Everyone will see it. It will be not something you have to move towards in order to, someone says, it's over here, and you have to go there, or, you, or whatever the case might be. As the lightning that lighteneth out of one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in His day. Everyone will know it happened. Everyone will see it. So, believer, you can settle your heart. And you're wondering, will I know? Will I, will I see it? Will I understand? Yes, you will. You will. So you don't have to listen to the voices. And of course, they're, they're all there. They play upon it. And their, their whole entire ministry still to this day that play upon your fears. 
And they love to play upon your fears. And they love to take the headlines and then take Scripture and, and read the Scripture through the lens of the headlines to cause anxiety and fear and concern. Don't listen. If you follow such ministries, stop it. Don't do it. If it causes more anxiety in your soul, then there's a problem because the return of Christ is a message of comfort to believers, not anxiety. It's not something we have to be worried about. So the king's return will be anticipated in a genuine way and in a deceptive way. Also, the king's experience will be instructive. The king's experience will be instructive. Look at verse 25. I think I need to understand what the Lord is saying here. Verse 25, But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. So, of course, a plain reading, of course, the Lord is saying that something must precede all of this, the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to suffer. Before any of this all transpires, he's going to be rejected of this generation. Of course, that's just around the corner. But the, the encouragement of this, the encouragement of this, I think, is to help, to help his people understand this. That he is going to suffer, and yet he is carrying on faithfully, regardless. Because he's looking at his disciples and, and He's a, he sees in their heart, the days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. You're looking for it to happen, and it doesn't. Why are you looking for it to happen? Well, as I said, for many reasons. The, 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 the martyrdoms, the persecutions, the difficulties, the unbelief, the, the mess of the church as well as the world, all of that is going to cause them to desire this. But what they need to be instructed in is, is how the Lord Jesus how he remained faithful even in the midst of the persecution that came his way and his own offering up of himself. And so it's instructive for them to remember he carried on amidst all of the unbelief and all of the persecution and all of the ultimate taking of him and the crucifying of him, all of that he kept going on faithfully. And so believers are to do the same, to be instructed by the Lord Jesus in that way. You think of all the Lord suffered and experienced. You say, would He not sort of will for the conclusion of it all? In a natural sense, you might say yes, but of course, He, he embraced it, knowing what He was suffering for. So I think it's instructive for us to see that. First, He must suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. So it's like, this is going to happen, but it's, it's instructing them as well that when you suffer, you're, you're only doing and experiencing what the Master experienced as well. Thirdly, not only have here the king's return will be anticipated, the king's experience will be instructive, but the king's arrival will be startling. It will be startling. And you read on, you begin to see the warnings that come from the Lord here. Verse 26, let's read from there. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. 
Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So, there's going to be a startling aspect to his arrival. And there are then these, first of all, warnings from history. Warnings from history. Verses 26 through 30 give these warnings from history. He focuses upon key historical events, that of Noah and that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you read this and immediately you begin to read into it sometimes, things that are going on. For example, the days of Noah, it's going to be like that. And you begin to say, well, what were the days of Noah like? Were they wicked? Yes, they were. Were, were people given to all sorts of, of heinous wickedness? We're told that the, the imaginations of of men were only evil continually. So it is wicked. But that's not the point. That's not what the Lord is focusing upon. He's not focusing upon the wickedness of the generation. What he's actually focusing upon is that they're just living their lives, oblivious to pending doom and judgment, oblivious to the arrival of God in the judgment of the flood. They're just carrying on normal life. They don't think. So what are they doing? Well, they're, they're still eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. They're just carrying on as normal. Noah's preaching and preaching and preaching, and they're just, yeah, that old Noah, <laughs> it's been going on for decades now, building that big old thing, whatever that is that he's building, you know, just mocking him and not taking on board what he's saying. They're just carrying on in normal mode living as if everything is fine and no judgment is round the corner. That is the similarity. That is what is going to attend the arrival of the Lord. At least that's the emphasis of this portion of Scripture. Expect men just to be carrying on their business, just doing their normal things, and then the Lord will arrive. This is true also of the other historical event that's given, with regard to the day of Lot. Likewise also, verse 28, as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted and builded. Again, what do we know about Lot's day in Sodom? We know lots of things about the wickedness and the things that were going on there, but that's not the focus. That's not what he highlights, is it? He's not focusing on how the wickedness of what they were doing. It's just the normal things. Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. They're just carrying on living normal life. That's the way it's going to be when the Lord comes. Life will just be carrying on as normal. In other words, the warnings of history are plain with regard to this. You're expecting some heads up from God. And you think to yourself, well, if He's going to come, there'll be something that will indicate to me that I need to change my course and my ways. But, but that's not how you're going to see it. It's going to come like a thief in the night to you, if you're not saved. You'll just, just, be, just be like another night. You go to bed, and you, you, you carry on, and the thief comes, and you're robbed, you're stolen. Everything's taken from you. You weren't expecting. It was just a normal occasion. Caught off guard. That's the arrival of Christ. People just living their lives, and the Lord comes, and they're caught 
unawares. It will be startling to see this from the warnings from history. People with no concern. I wonder, is that true of those I'm addressing here as well, that you, you just don't have any sense of concern for the return of Christ and the judgment that will come at that moment. No, no thought of it, no, no consideration. That, that you can continue in a condition of unbelief and uncertainty and have no real care. This will mark the world at that time. There's not just warnings from history, there's also warnings from hesitation. Look at verse 31. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, what, what, what's he going to do? He's going to, going to immediately going to think about things that he can rescue or save. And he's told, let him not come down to take it away. It's in that moment he begins to think about the things that he can salvage. <laughs> what can I salvage? like a man's house is on fire and he's, instead of just getting out of there, he's thinking about, oh, well, I need to go and get the wedding album and I need to get the, you know, the, my laptop, everything and my whole life is on that laptop, whatever. Just get out of there, man! Every second you're there, the smoke is threatening to take your consciousness away and you'll be in there and you'll perish. Get out! And boats begin to capsize and sink. People are doing the same thing, trying to gather stuff into their arms and, and rescue it all as the, the boats go down, as the ships go down. What are you doing? Just get out of there. If you can get yourself to safety, you succeed. So the Lord is warning, this is the way men will be. In that moment, there'll be a temptation, a temptation. He's upon, he is, who's upon the housetop, the stuff in his house, let him not come down to take it away. Don't let him think that this is how he's to respond. It's just get out of there. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. And that's, that's the temptation. You're in the field. When impending doom is coming, think of it in terms of warfare. And this is, these are some of the verses where you begin to wonder, is this sort of kind of touching on AD 70, because what would happen, of course, is as you know armies are on the way, and you're out in the field carrying out your agrarian responsibilities in the little patch you have outside the city walls, when you know the army is coming, you just drop everything, you run into the city wall. You run for your life into the city. The language of the Lord here, and of course in other places, is don't do that. Run to the mountains. Get out of there. Judgment is going to come upon the city. Get away. I think, as I say, this is still relating to all the, this passage is dealing with the Lord's return. And he is, he's, he's touching on the kind of mentality of people at that time where they're going to try and salvage things. They're going to, as it were, want to hold on. This is the, it's, it's more, it's, not, it's what they're doing, what they're expressed as doing is, is communicating where their heart is. That's really the point. It doesn't really matter whether they go from the housetop downstairs to save anything or whether they're in the field and they're running back to their homes to try and salvage stuff. That's not really whether... The, but that kind of action shows you where their hearts are. Their hearts are tied to this world. They're just tied in, so interwoven into this life. It's all about now. 
my stuff, my stuff. Are you tied to your stuff, are you? Are you tied to the stuff of life? It's okay to have things. Have your things. Ladies, have your pretty things. Men, have your tools and your machinery, whatever it is you're into. Have them. It's okay. It's not wrong. But how do you hold on to it? How do you hold on to it? Does it actually have a grip over you that destroys the soul? Like you're, everything's indicating the Lord is coming and you're holding on to your, your gold, your wealth, as if it matters. So there's warnings from hesitation. And then again, you have another historical, but this, this is a hesitation as well. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. You remember Lot's wife? Remember what she did? We're not told much about her. Was she, was she from Sodom? Is that where Lot found her? Was he married before and took her there? Lots of details Many aspects we're not sure of, but, but as Lot parted from Abraham and he pitches his tent towards Sodom, the next time we find him, he's at the gate of the city. So he's not just now looking towards Sodom, he has actually become entangled into Sodom. And in fact, he's actually gotten position within the city. He's at the gate, which means he has authority. He is like an elder figure of the city. He's there. And so here's a man who's intertwined his life into the most wicked city or one of the most wicked cities of that generation. Now, he's a believer. He knows the Lord. He's been taught the true living God from his uncle Abraham. And he has a wife. And no doubt she's aware of the truth and has been instructed but they begin to live in Sodom and imbibe certain aspects of Sodom, and they become attached to Sodom. They begin to like the city life rather than the old agrarian lifestyle that they once had. They, they get to sit there in the city, and their servants deal with all of their, their cattle and their sheep and livestock and everything. They, they can handle all of that, and they get to enjoy the city life. And so they have a couple of daughters, and they're raising them in the city as well being influenced, and as the years go on, more and more of Sodom begins to find its way into her heart. This is life for her. She's become attached. The, the idea of going back to be with Abraham or live with Abraham, no way. Perhaps even it came up in discussion sometimes where maybe things began to get really bad in Sodom, and Lot says to his wife, maybe we should go back and try to work things out living in proximity to Abraham. No way! I like it here! Okay. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. So <laughs> he's, he's just settled there. Then, then news comes of judgment upon that city. And two angels are sent by God to go in there. Lot immediately 
He brings them into his household. I'll not go into all the details of what transpires, but, but as they're being warned by these angels of what's happening, what God's about to do, we find Lot lingering. And these two angels, they end up having to grab one hand each. They take Lot's hand, his wife's hand, another takes one of the daughters and the other daughter's hand, and has to, they have to pull them out of that city. Because the judgment of God is about to fall. The city is about to be ruined. And they're pulled out of the city, brought to a place of safety, and then they're giving a, given a word. One of the angels says, Look not behind thee. Get away from here. Escape to the mountain lest you be consumed. Move it. Get out. Don't even look behind you. And so as they move, what does she do? What does she do? Her heart, as the judgment of God begins to fall upon that city, and she can hear it, it's almost like her heart's breaking. That life, that life that she had there is being swallowed up in the judgment of God, and she is pining and hurting and longing for it, and she, she looks back, not just out of curiosity, but because that was where her life was. She had become entangled into that way of living, and she wanted to be there and nowhere else. And so this unnamed woman becomes a monument to generations to come. Not just when she was turned into a pillar of salt right there and then, but right here, immortalized in the words of the Son of God, as He speaks, he speaks to His disciples. He said, remember Lot's wife. Don't become so entangled in this world that when the judgment's about to fall, you're hesitating and you're looking back. And this language continues in verse 33. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. Again, this is the same idea. They're trying to protect and preserve all the stuff of life. The material, the relational, all the things they prize and value. And whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Or give up all the stuff. Untangle yourself from these things unhook from all the things that don't matter. Don't be found out, tied into the world. Because if you do, you'll struggle to let go of it. It's usually one of the differences that mark the real, the believer who has lived his life well and spent it well. It's not universal. There, 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 there are different 
experiences. Obviously, you have a man like Hezekiah who's told he's going to die, and there's something in him that, that no, no, my, the time is not yet. He prays. God extends his life. But when that time comes, there's a resignation to the believer. They don't feel tired. They're ready to let go. They've lived their life well. They've served their God. They've borne witness of His love. They've taught their children and their grandchildren. They've left the legacy of faithfulness to Christ. They've, they've run their course. And they can go. Whereas the man who only has this life, he's holding on to white knuckles, as it were, can't let go, doesn't know how. So you have also then here the king's arrival will be dividing. The king's return will be anticipated. The king's experience will be instructive. The king's arrival will be startling. And it will be dividing. Verse 34. I tell you, in that night there shall be two, and you see in Talek's men, obviously the idea is a husband and wife here, there'll be two in one bed. The one shall be taken, the other shall be left. There'll be two grinding, at the, grinding together, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two shall be in the field, the one shall be taken, and the other left. And so there, there will be a division among men. People who knew each, each other will be divided. Now, how does this division take place? Lots of debate about that. Many, of course, have been influenced by an idea that the people of God, the faithful, will be secretly raptured away. That's what they say this is hap what's happening here. They're just going to poof, disappear, while the ungodly, unbelieving continue to live. That's how they see this passage. But while there will be a rapture, a taking up of souls, I don't think, I, personally, just for what it's worth, and it's not like it is, you know, if you believe one or the other, that... One's heretical and the other's, you know, not or whatever. But just so you understand, I, I don't think we should see it that way as far as the Lord's return. And I think there are passages that help us understand what's actually taking place when the Lord speaks of two, one taken, the other left. Go to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, read from verse, we see from verse 36 where the disciples are wanting him to declare the parable of the tares of the field. Explain it to us. So verse 37, he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, 
The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned, or taken and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Go to verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be in the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So from these portions it would appear that the ones taken are those that are ungodly. And this is true of the passage when the Lord says in Matthew 24 about it being like the days of Noah when the flood came and took them all away. Two in the field, one taken, the other left. The flood comes, takes them all away. Who did the flood take away? The flood didn't take away the godly. The flood took away the ungodly. And so that's how I understand it when you've... this. this Christ illustrating what's happening at the end when, when you have this division of humanity. Some are taken, others are left. Who's taken? The angels are sent forth to gather the wicked and cast them into judgment. Again, good people believe otherwise. I'm not going to be too harsh on them, but I, it just doesn't make any sense. In my head... Of course, they'll bring up 1 Thessalonians of 4 and all the rest of it, but even that passage is God's people being taken to come back to the earth. It's the idea. Not taken to disappear, but taken up, meeting the Lord in the air and coming back with Him here. But that all aside, what's the point? It's the fact that there's a division. And the question you need to ask yourself, just as I need to ask myself, is when that great dividing day comes, when there are the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left, when there is a division among humanity, where will I be? Where will I be? Because this is going to come suddenly. This is going to happen in a way where there isn't time to prepare. If you're not already prepared, it's going to be too late. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Of course, the coming of the Lord, His return, has much to instruct the people of God. It's not just as a warning to those that are not saved, but it's instructive to us all. 2 Peter 3. We'll read from verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? So that's this, it's like, anticipating this. He said He's coming. Where is He? 
Noskov. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It's going to happen. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that the one, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. As some men count slackness. He's not... He's not in any way unwilling or hesitant or idle concerning the fulfillment of His Word. It's going to happen. So, so why the delay? He is long-suffering to usward. What does he mean there? What's Peter saying? He is being patient. He is being long-suffering to a particular group of people. Who are these people? Those for whom Christ died. Those for whom He shed His blood. Those whom He claimed and said, they're mine because the Father has put them in my hand. And not one of them will be lost. So as time goes on, what's the reason for the delay? There's still more to be gathered in. Now you take that on board. That means that we are to be about the business of evangelism, because this is the only reason why Christ hasn't yet come back. If you want Him to return, if you desire Him to return, then be proactive about the one thing that delays His return. The fact that there are more to be brought in. To move us then to preach the gospel. He is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. And I understand it. That's, that's, that's any of those that of his people is long-suffering to those who he refers to already in another portion as the elect. He is long-suffering to them, not willing that any of them should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, Right? What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness looking for and hasting on to the coming of the day of God when the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? There's application. He's going to come. He's going to burn it all up. It's going to be dissolved. What manner of person should you be? Careless? Indifferent? Like those in the days of Noah, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage? Like those of Sodom, eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building? Is, is that what you're to be? Just all about this life? Or are you to really soberly assess how am I to live since the Son of God's coming back? How am I to live? Holy behavior and godliness. Holy behavior and godliness. 
distinct from this wicked world. And so the passage closes then. Going back to Luke 17. The disciples answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? Where will this all happen? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Again, this is part of the debate. The translation here, some like eagles, then because they see this as the Roman army and their mark was the eagle, and so this is indication of the Roman army coming in. You see the Roman armies gathering together, that's where it will be. I think the better translation is that of vultures. Eagles don't tend to gather together anyway. Vultures do. Eagles are alone, generally on their own. Not many of them, but vultures, they come and flock together upon the prey. But the whole idea is there's death and destruction and judgment. Friends, it's going to be universal. It's going to come across the entire world. This judgment will come upon all. The king rules over all. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. It all belongs to him. So he will sovereignly bring all things to a close. As I said at the beginning, then, the real question about this passage is, am I in the kingdom? Am I? Am I a citizen? Am I looking for it? Am I anticipating the arrival and the consummation of all the work of Christ where He just gathers all things and brings it to a close and there's a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And only those clothed in the righteousness of Christ will be there. Only those who by faith seized upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will be there. Only those chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world will be there. Only those who love His appearing and look for it will be there. And the rest, gathered by the angels at the command of the Son of God and cast into the lake of fire. Where are you, friend? Where are you? I scan my eye across this congregation and I, I wonder, I wonder, is there anyone still undecided? Still unconverted? Still procrastinating? Still thinking to yourself, preacher, I know. I know what you're saying. I follow every word. I want what Christ offers. And I want on that day to be with His people. I want it. But there's something, something, something you look back on so that instead of sitting in your pew and looking on to Jesus and throwing your whole heart into His arms and saying, Lord Jesus, have me, have mercy upon me. Save me. And whatever time I have on this earth, I want to live it for you. I'm going to take up the cross and follow you, Lord. Instead of that wholehearted response of giving your life to Christ, you're looking back on something. You're looking back on something you think you're going to lose. 
Something you're going to regret because if I take Christ, then my hands can't also hold on to that sin or that habit or that friendship or whatever it is. You won't. You won't let go. And you're holding on. You're holding on to whatever it is. That thing is going to damn you. That one thing. That one thing. Oh, my friend, don't do it. Prepare to meet thy God. Prepare. Make the preparation tonight. Be ready. For in an hour that you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Let's bow together in prayer. May I encourage you in these very moments, even before we leave this building, before you get up from your seat, may I encourage you to seek the Lord. Just cry out from your heart, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Take Jesus Christ at His word. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And the Lord will take you. And he will save you. Seek Him. Seek Him now. Lord, give. Give that deciding grace. Help the stumbling the halting. Help those, O oh God. They're weighing their options and can't seem to see the folly of their the way they're allowing anything to stand in the way of obtaining eternal life. Oh God. Draw them. Draw them irresistibly. Spirit of God, work upon the heart. Give no rest, Lord, I beg of Thee. Save. Save precious souls. So go with us as we leave this place. Help us in our conversation not to lose the word. May thy hand be upon thy people and their going out and coming in this week. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.